Well, take your Bibles and turn with me one more time to the book of 1 Corinthians. And if you're using one of our Bibles here, just take it out, and it's page 935. You can follow along better if you've got the Bible text in front of you. 1 Corinthians, we started this journey back in uh, February, actually. And as we've gone along in this study of Paul writing to the first century Christians in the city of Corinth, we have seen that Paul has been very direct in uh, handling, addressing sin problems in Corinth. Very direct. While at the same time, we have been able to see his heart of love. These were his Christian friends because Paul had this great combination of truth and grace. Truth and grace, because that's how God sees the world as well. There is a truth that we have a sin problem, and then there is the grace that God the Father sent his eternal son Jesus to be our Savior. That's the, the story, the, the, that's the event we remember of Christmas. Christ became man to, to show us grace, truth and grace. And so as we look at this, kind of this last part of this chapter is like Paul closing a letter, like one of us closing a letter with some personal notes, right? There's like a little bit of his itinerary, there's greetings, there's affirmations, kind of like a goodbye. Even in the midst of that, you see these issues, crucial issues in our Christian life of truth and grace, because truth and grace is what we need in all of our relationships with one another as well. There was conflict in Corinth in that church, and and what they needed was truth and grace. And what we find is that we easily slip into one end of that or the other, like ditches that we need to avoid, because sometimes you can't choose one or the other, grace or truth. Some Christians are marked more by truth. They, They are all about truth, and they are right. But sometimes they're lacking grace, and so it's possible that we can leave kind of a trail of hurt so that no one's really benefiting much from our truth that we know. Other Christians are marked more by grace. And it can get to the place where it's like you almost excuse sin. And so really you're little help to someone who's, who's being damaged by sin. That how, how can you help them if you don't address the truth? So what, what really Paul has been doing in, in this whole book, as well as you just see it kind of oozing through these comments, personal comments, is to say, we need to develop a, a right blend, like God did, of grace and truth. So the first couple of verses, uh, we pick it up in verse 10, uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 10. He's going to talk about Timothy. He's going to talk about Apollos, who will be making visits uh, to the Corinthian church. If Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should refuse to accept him. Send him, that's Timothy, on his way in peace so that he may return to me, Paul. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. So as this... uh, This statement opens, he says, if Timothy comes, some of your Bibles say a little bit more accurately when Timothy comes. It's it's like an if word in the early church uh, is an if word that meant like whenever he comes. The issue was he wasn't certain when he would come because you see Paul and, and, and Timothy didn't text every day to kind of keep up with each other. So just a little review, uh, the church is in Corinth, but Paul is in Ephesus 
spending a couple of years there, and he's writing this letter to Corinth. And he says, when Timothy comes to you, he's up in Macedonia, most likely, from other little notes we have in the New Testament. And we know from 1 Corinthians 4.17, earlier in this same letter, he said, I am sending Timothy to you. So it's not a matter of that it's in doubt that Timothy is coming. It's just that he didn't know when that would be. So when he comes, he says, make sure he has nothing to fear. Why would Timothy have something to fear in a church? I think this reveals a little bit of what we know about Timothy elsewhere. Uh, there's a book, the New Testament, of course, First and Second Timothy, and we find Paul saying things like this. Um, God did not give us a spirit of timidity, Tim. In other words, he must have been a kind of a timid kind of a guy. And, and we see a statement like, uh, stir up the gift that's in you. Come on, like, like, like light a match. Command and teach. Uh, preach the word. And, and, and Timothy, don't let people look down on you because you're young. Those kind of things. So it's like Timothy was this great godly man that Paul was discipling and that would become a pastor in Ephesus and so forth, but he knew his timidity. So he wanted to make sure when he sent them to Corinth, to that kind of troubled church at a difficult time that, that they would respect him. So, so Paul is like lending his authority to, to Timothy. He is carrying out the work of the Lord just as I am. So treat him like you would treat me. When you go back to the story of the, the church in Acts, Acts chapter 18 tells when Paul came to Corinth to actually start the church there. He started with, it was Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla, and then later on, this guy, Timothy, came to join the team. So the Corinthians already knew him, but that would have to be at least probably five years earlier. It had been a while since they had seen Timothy, at least four years, and he had maybe been serving there starting at five. So probably they saw him as this young kid who kind of helped Paul. So they might struggle to respect him. I mean, like, I mean, he's just a kid. Did, did he, like, carry your water or something? And Paul says, no, this guy is a, a young, maturing leader, and you need to give him full support as a leader. So that seems to be an issue, the nature of Timothy and his youthfulness, and maybe even the fact that we know from chapter 1 that, that um, the Corinthians could be kind of judgmental and partisan, where they said, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of... Who's Timothy. And so all these kind of factors seem to be part of this human struggle because churches have all these kind of dynamics in them, right? And then it says, send him on his way in peace. So when he moves on, uh, support him financially. And did you notice it says then in the middle of verse 11, uh, so that he may return to me. That really is saying there's some accountability. So I'm sending Timothy to you, and you need to send him back to me. So I'm going to hear how, how you treated him. So there's, a, there's all this, this human dynamic here. And it's, it is kind of interesting if, as you, as, you uh, as an individual, begin to study the New Testament more. You know, you want to know the book of Acts because you kind of see how, how everything happened, but you, you realize that you kind of get lost and you need some of those maps. I, we kind of know where, where Paul was throughout the two decades of his ministry, but it's kind of hard to keep track of the many helpers he had, like Timothy and all the coming and going. In fact, one thing that isn't directly said but implied in 2 Corinthians is that there was so much tension there in Corinth that Paul had to make an additional quick trip to Corinth. Uh, check out what's called sometimes the painful visit that really was probably a follow-up to this letter where Paul had to go and, and address some of the accusations against himself and some of the misunderstandings as well as kind of the immaturity and, and really, when we're honest, we have to say, 
Church life in Corinth was pretty messy. Every church has messy situations because we are sinners, right? And so there's like this different things sometimes going on, and, 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 and we, we all have idiosyncrasies, and sometimes I'll hear someone say, well, you know, he's kind of unique, and I want to say, aren't we all? Everyone is unique, and that is actually the impressive thing about the body of Christ that around Christ, it's amazing how God then knits our hearts together to, to serve and love and unity. It's, it's a great thing. But, but Paul knows that even a great guy like Timothy could be easily disrespected. And so what basically, that what I call an affirmation here, another way to say it is good gossip. Good gossip. Have you ever, have you ever bragged about people behind their back? <laughs> That's permissible, okay? When you, when you might hear something negative about someone and you say, you know, but here's what I really like about them. And all of a sudden, the whole tone of the conversation shifts because you're, you're, you're spreading good gossip, affirmation. And, and so whatever Timothy's weaknesses were, maybe even as a, as a young uh, pastor developing it, uh, Paul was lending him support. That's grace. Be gentle, be accepting of, of Timothy. He'll be teaching the Word of God just like I've been teaching you. Okay, who else is coming to Corinth? Well, Apollos, verse 12. Now about our brother, Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. First of all, the name Apollos, if you've studied with us in this, in this book, uh, should ring a bell, starting back in chapter 1, because Apollos had a fan club in Corinth, and there was that group of people that said, I'm, I'm an Apollos kind of a guy. That, that's the man I follow. We talked about, you know, don't, don't just attach yourself to a person or a teacher or a pastor or a preacher or evangelist. Just, but but pa- Apollos was an appealing younger guy who evidently was really a good speaker, it indicates. People love to hear him speak, probably more than Paul. And uh, Paul didn't feel threatened by that. He said, I want, I want you to benefit from Apollos. So I told him he needs to go see you guys. And he said, no, not yet. Can you tell, can you tell the Apostle Paul no? Um, see, everything that Paul said was not necessarily inspired by God. He had regular conversations too. And he had an opinion, hey, Apollos, I think you should go. And Apollos kind of pushed back and says, no, I don't think I want to go now. And so I kind of find it encouraging that uh, there's something that Paul backed down on. He's not coming now, but he'll, he'll get there eventually. But it reveals, again, something about the humanness of church life. There's a lot of things we just plain have to discuss and work through. We won't all agree on how to do things. Sometimes like this, when to do something. We could wish maybe that, you know, if we have a congregational business meeting or a board meeting or whatever, that like God would like audibly say, on agenda three, you know, what to do, but it just doesn't work that way. And so we have opinions, and, 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 and eventually somebody says, okay, I think I see the wisdom in that, and God is directing, and, and, and somebody has to back down, and it's okay if we don't get our own way on things. So practical things like when to go, when to do, what to do, budgets, building programs, right? Um, new ministry ideas, uh, staff hiring. In fact, as we um, 
when God does lead us to another pastor to join our staff, you know, he probably won't be everyone's top choice. Everybody sees an individual a little bit differently, right? We all have kind of this, I like this, you know? So every decision requires grace. So we we are seeking to be a place of truth, absolute truth, the scriptures, right? But in a place of truth especially, we have to be abundant, lathering on the grace so that, so that our truth is heard because our grace is seen. So after affirming, spreading good gossip about Timothy and uh, Apollos, it's interesting what Paul does in verses 13 and 14 because it's like he can't help himself. He inserts a quick little sermon or sermon summary or mini-sermon uh, of some things that are, he said, I, this is what I've been trying to tell you. And if we look carefully at, the, at this, these statements, it's like this is a summary with bullet points of the book of 1 Corinthians. Here we go. Be on your guard, stand firm. That's the first bullet point. Stand firm in the faith. Secondly, be men of courage, be strong. And thirdly, do everything in love. Paul's heart for the Corinthians was that they would mature. Because everything that he checked off his list that he had to talk to them about that was difficult was a sign of immaturity. And so maybe some would would be immature in this area, but they just don't recognize this is a sin problem over here. And he says, you'll never mature that way because you have to address the areas of immaturity. So he says, first of all, be alert and firm in the faith, or he's referring to doctrine, it seems, truth. When, uh, When the word faith in the New Testament has the, the, the article the, the faith, then it's not just talking about being faithful or putting your faith in. The faith generally refers to that which we believe and know to be true. And the core or the kernel of truth that was the, is the whole Christian message is like the beginning of chapter 15. The gospel by which we are saved is that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. Like Caden just reminded and demonstrated for us. That's the gospel. Christ died for our sins and rose again, period. So that's the core, the faith. So he says, make sure you stand firm on the truth. That's what's going to, to matter in the long run. There are a lot of other issues of truth and immaturity and things that he had to address, but the faith. I was thinking this week, trying to project 50 years from now. 50 years from now, Hardly anybody who's in this room will be in this room, right? I won't be. Will the faith, the gospel, survive? You know, some of our, our, our middle schoolers and teenagers, some of those being baptized today, you know, they'll, they'll be like nearing retirement age, and if the Lord hasn't returned in the rapture, and this church building and meet, is still meeting with people following Christ, that would be the core of what I pray would be clear. Christ died for our sins and rose again. Because eternity, where we spend eternity, is at stake in that. So he says, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith. Let's be clear on the faith, the doctrine, the truth. Then he says, be men of courage, be strong. Or It's an interesting Greek term that he uses. It's the word for bravery, but the word for bravery is literally be manly. 
uh, uh, the root word is biological male, okay? So to say be courageous, says, was, you, the way you said it was be, be manly. I think that's an important reminder. Men, let's not ever let the world talk us out of our design by God to be strong as men. Spiritually first. Emotionally, physically, uh, when necessary, to defend and support our family. I, I, I realize sometimes when we think of strength, you just think of, of uh, we're better at opening pickle jars or playing tug-of-war or something like that. But it is, it is about being strong spiritually. That's manliness. And frankly, the movement in our culture of, of the gender confusion and the trans everything, I really believe to be Satan's great effort to destroy God's great design for men as well as for women. It is no insult, ladies, that God's word here says, be courageous like a man because... Paul was also not embarrassed to say we were gentle like women. Let me just show you this. A little bit of a side note, I know, but courageous and strong like a man, gentle and loving like a woman. So here's our verse. Be on the alert, stand firm in that faith, act like men, be strong. It's written to men and women. But when he wrote to the Thessalonians, Paul said this. But we were gentle. Who's we? Paul and a bunch of other manly men apostles, okay? We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. You see the gentle, caring nature? It's like Paul realized what we all need to realize is that, that we need to realize how God distinctly gifted and, and, and gave us strengths in the gender we are and then we need to learn from each other. So men, we're examples of courage for the ladies. And ladies, you are definitely an example to us of gentleness. Um, I think together we model the best of God's design. And so churches and families are healthier, I think, when we understand that complementary natures that God has given us. So be brave with truth. Be courageous. Don't soften God's word but say it in love. I, I'm always uh, so, so grateful to see how the high school room on Wednesday nights is filled with high school students from our church and from the community. And you know what they do in that room? They listen to Pastor Nate preach God's word. Basically, it's like he just preached to adults. It's not just fun and games. Because people, young people, are thirsty for the word of God the truth. And the same thing happens Sunday morning, of course, and uh, each of the levels in different ways. We need the truth. The world needs the truth. We need to stand on the truth. But what's the third thing he says in verse 14? Do everything in love. The truth must be oiled with love. Do everything in love. That didn't mean soften the truth. It means do it Speak the truth from a heart of love because you are mirroring what God has done for us who knowing the truths of our sin and our need, God so loved the world that he gave his only son on the cross that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. He says, I sent my son so you can have eternal life. There is nothing more loving than that. Do everything 
in love. So Paul inserts this little mini-sermon, and then he goes back to affirm good gossip about three more people. These were men who actually were from Corinth who had come to see him uh, in, in Ephesus. But he focuses, first of all, on Stephanus. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. That's the area where the city of Corinth was. And they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. I urge you, brothers, to submit to such as these and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus and two more names, Fortunatus and Achaicus, arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you, Corinthians. How's that? For they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve uh, recognition, respect, uh, something like that. So Paul, as we mentioned earlier, is in uh, Ephesus, and uh, he gets a, a visit from these three men, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. So they had to travel you know, either by land over the top through Macedonia, like Timothy usually went, or maybe they got a, a ship. But they came. Some have said maybe they were on a business trip, so they stopped in to see him. I think they came uh, as really saying, Paul, we really need your help with some things that are going on in, in Corinth. But starting in verse 15, uh, 15, Stephanus was the first convert, or he's the first one who put his faith in Christ when Paul came to that city and proclaimed the message that we've been talking about today. He came there with Aquila and Priscilla, and, and somebody had to be first. Now we know who it was, Stephanus. Uh, years ago, I've mentioned this guy before, but when uh, our missionary Bill Keel took me on a missions trip to uh, Thailand, and I got to sit in the little uh, village house of the first convert in the So tribe in Thailand, Nison, and had a meal with him and his wife, who at that time was not a believer, though later, before she passed away, she had put her faith in Christ, and their son became actually one of the, the church leaders as well. Um, someone has to be first in a family, in a church. Some of you here, maybe quite a few of you here, are the first in your family to understand clearly the gospel and put your faith in Christ alone. Count it a privilege. I know sometimes you might think, oh man, I wish, you know, all my relatives and everything. No, just realize that God has entrusted you with lighting the flame of the gospel for your family. So you pray, you trust, and you, you seek the times when the time is right to share what is so important, what is so uh, uh, vital about this because you can be the start of something eternal. That was Stephanus. And his household, household, uh, of course, includes uh, wife and, and kids, but probably if he was a landowner, he may have had servants uh, living with him as well. And it seems like they together have come to the acknowledgement of, of putting their faith in Christ. And then it says, middle of verse 15, they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. They plural. So it's not just like, you know, Stephanus the dad, he got busy doing church stuff. They, as a family, begin to do things together to serve the gospel. So the gospel not only spread through the family, but serving spread through the family. An ideal doesn't always work, but it, it, eternal impact can multiply exponentially when you sometimes involve your kids 
So it makes us ask the question, and if you, if you are a parent with children at home especially, how can you serve Christ together? How can you make serving Christ uh, normal? I'm, I always enjoy um, at the, at when you do the Operation Christmas Child with the shoeboxes. I know a lot of your families do a good job of, of getting your kids involved and shopping together, and they get to see that, hey, we're putting together a box, and there's going to be a little gospel message in there, and it's going to you know, Uganda or someplace across the world. And, and uh, what a great way to start serving Christ together. But what else could you do? Um, help a neighbor. Make a meal for someone together. Deliver it together. Involve your kids. Visit people in a nursing home. I know a highlight, uh, it doesn't work obviously for everyone, but a highlight for uh, our family when our six kids were younger, we, we went to visit a missionary in Mexico and we had from two years old to, I think it's 15 years old, and we got to visit this family, and they, their kids knew our kids. And, and just this, the opportunity, what can you do together so that they can, like, God can use that to catch a bug of, of, of a ministry? They have devoted themselves. How you serve is like the front page of the gospel of truth. How you serve comes first. People don't care about the gospel till they know that you care about them. And so Stephanus and his household, his people were like that. They were, they were servants. And then Paul says, and submit, verse 16, to such as these and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. Well, submit is a pretty much of a top-down word. Submit or obey. Stephanus was obviously a leader, and he's from Corinth. He's going back to Corinth. And as, as you think about it, he seems, this, this, this little triad we're going to mention, the other two, these three guys are going to be the ones who take this letter and deliver it to the church. And after all these months of, of realizing just the kind of specific, blunt things that, that Paul had to say to the church, somebody had to read this letter. I don't know if they did it all in one Sunday or you know, they took sections of it a little bit like we do. But this is very specific, even you know, naming names in some cases. So that's a hard job. And I bet you Stephanus was the one who read it. That's just my own gut feeling. And so he's going to take some pushback. And in fact, 2 Corinthians suggests that he really did take some pushback. And so he's going to need uh, some, of the, some of the validity of, of Paul. And that's what he's doing. He's saying, Stephanus, I've got your back. So as he reads this part of the letter, they realize Paul has commissioned this. The other two people, Fortunatus and Achaicus, uh, they have supplied what you could not do. Um, it's not necessarily a financial word, though it could have been, but I think verse 18 tells you what these three men supplied for Paul. For they refreshed my spirit and yours also. That's why they deserve respect. They refreshed my spirit. Sometimes what we just really need is someone to come along and encourage us, right? Uh, someone has said, uh, I heard someone say once, you could, they could last, I don't know how many weeks, on one good compliment. <laughs> just someone to, to encourage. They refresh my spirit. So on one hand, verse 14 says, do everything in love. But then there are those special people that will refresh your spirit in a personal face-to-face kind of way. And if, if you dare to draw close to a church family, you will find those people to refresh you. 
If you draw close, you'll find the people that annoy you and hurt you. That's the risk. It'll happen. But you will find those people who refresh you as well. And I feel badly sometimes for Christians who kind of keep an arm's length away from close relationships in the church family. It makes me wonder, you know, did you have like bad experiences in another church? Could be. But are you going to assume that what happened there is, 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 is what's going to happen in relationships here? Um, you assume that all Christians are hypocrites or judgmental or whatever it is you experienced. Risk it. And if you grew up in a home that was maybe a little bit more dysfunctional or even abusive, do you realize that God intended for the church to be a family where there is, you will meet the brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers that God will, will gather around you? Get to know people so you meet those who will refresh your spirit, the kind of people that make you start to smile before you've even seen them on Sunday. You just saw their car coming in the driveway, and you start to smile. God wants to do that for you. So, we've read a, a list of uh, affirmations, good gossip about these uh, Timothy, Apollos, and these other three men. And uh, the example to us is, how good of an encourager are we? When's the last time we affirmed or complimented someone uh, on something that mattered? Encouragement is a huge gift to impart to others. Well, Paul's going to close now, as letters do, with personal greetings. But even his greetings seem to tell a, a story of uh, grace and truth. You keep seeing more of, of the relationship uh, emerging from this. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord. And so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. So there's a whole list of, of greetings uh, to kind of just think through what we can know. But the overall picture we get is that personal greetings are important because personal connections are important. Stay connected. And, and, and we can groan about uh, the negative sides of, of, of social media or texting or whatever, but frankly, it's something that uh, we can use to keep up with each other and keep encouraging one another. And uh, if you say, well, we should just call people on the phone or mail a card like Paul, well, you know, probably he didn't do that either. <laughs> because they didn't have phones and they didn't have mail. In fact, this, was like, this letter was like, a unique opportunity. They didn't have Pony Express even. You, you, if you're going to send a letter, you have to know someone who's going there. Or maybe, if you're wealthy enough, you can hire someone and pay their way on the ship or the, or the, the horse or, or to, to, to travel on foot. But connection was important, so Paul took advantage to say, I've got to pass along my greetings because these people are thinking for you, of you and they're praying for you, the kind of things that we might tell each other uh, on a Sunday morning or in an adult Bible fellowship or maybe in a text or, or call or whatever. So greetings. First of all, from the churches, plural, in Asia. Well, the only church we know of for sure right now, at this point, 55 AD, is the church of Ephesus where Paul was. So just one more glimpse at the, uh, the map. So the letter's going to Corinth. He's writing from Ephesus, which is in Asia. Well, Asia, we're familiar with that term, but Asia was a very local term at that point. 
uh, very just very easily uh, small de defined as opposed to a whole continent. Maybe on the east side of, of what they called Asia was the city of Colossae or the book of Colossians. But the other possibility is that 30-some years later, as you read the book of Revelation, it starts with letters to seven churches. Those seven churches are all in Asia, probably the fruit of that ministry that Paul had for several years in Ephesus as he gets the gospel out to these different areas. So maybe these churches are in some stage of forming already. And then there is Aquila and Priscilla. So the same couple that he had just, uh, he had spent time with them, they helped him in Corinth. When Paul moved over to Ephesus, they came too and helped and supported him there as well. And it says here they hosted a church in their house because, of course, all churches met in houses at that point. There were no church buildings. And so uh, they followed him there, and it's possible or even likely that Paul fellowshiped with Aquila and Priscilla at the church in their house, as well as it seems there was, uh, yeah, so we don't know if there were others as well. And then it says, all the brothers here send, their greetings, send you greetings. Brothers probably refers to Paul's partners. Paul was a team kind of a guy. And if you look at little pieces of, of Paul's letters before, beginning and end of letters, especially throughout the New Testament, you find this name and that name, book of Acts, you find, I, I looked at a list, it looks like there's like 14, 16 different men who at different times were part of the team of Paul traveling around because he didn't do things alone. For a discipleship, for accountability, for strength in numbers, for encouragement. There's so many reasons why we try to develop teams even in, in church ministry now that, that no one's just doing things all by themselves and, and, uh, and there's, there's partners in ministry. So the brothers send you greetings. And then there's this one that's uh, puzzling and almost troubling. Greet one another with a kiss. So we're going to be forming lines after... I'm just kidding. <laughs> What was the uh, greeting with? It's probably just the basic Near Eastern greeting. You see people still today you know, on video or whatever, kind of like the two-cheek thing or kissing on the cheek or something. Probably it's more personal than a handshake because we shake hands about anybody that we just newly meet. Probably more like a hug where there's, you know, there's a personal relationship there. So the idea is that Christians who fellowship together in a church should be able to greet each other warmly. Suppose that was hard in Corinth, from what we know of the book and the letter and the church. There were these dueling parties. I am of Paul, I am of Paulus. I bet they sat together in different areas of the building when they met. I'm the Apollos people. We don't talk to those people. Hmm. There were people who were suing each other, chapter 6. Suppose those guys were talking the week before their court date. See, these things get, get messy. And uh, if there is someone in this local fellowship you will not speak to or greet, then God is working on your heart to establish grace. And it might be forgiveness that's needed. It might be apologies. It might be both. But someone's got to be mature enough to start it. Finally, Paul then greets them himself. I, Paul, verse 21, write this greeting in my own hand, which tells you the rest of the letter was not written by the hand of Paul. Maybe, maybe he didn't have the capacity, or maybe he had handwriting like mine. I don't know what the deal was, but 
He often used a scribe, sometimes called an amanuensis, to write his letters. But uh, in fact, we know we have a good guess at who it was because the very first verse of 1 Corinthians 1.1 says that I, Paul, greet you and Sosthenes, our brother, who might have been the guy doing the, uh, the, the, the writing itself. But Paul says, I sign it with my own hand. And that could even indicate a problem that had arisen because in 2 Thessalonians 2.2, Paul says, if somebody tells you or claims to be writing a letter from us, so maybe this kind of um, fraudulent uh, letter writing was taking place, claiming someone claiming Paul's authority. And so he says, I want to make sure that I validate this letter personally. And then the last three verses of this important letter are like three uh, postscripts, PS and PSS, right? So if anyone does not love the Lord, here's the first one, a curse be on him. Come, O Lord. Second one, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. 24, then my love to all of you in Christ Jesus, amen. Does that sound contradictory? I mean, this is like, this is like blunt, hard truth, great grace. Is that a contradiction? Think carefully. Uh, these, these are, this is shocking language to say a curse be upon him. It's, it's more, it'd be more he is cursed by God. It's not, it's not Paul's judgment ultimately, right? Anyone who does not love the Lord, he is, is cursed by God. This is like a raw form, just, just at the end of the letter to get their attention to the raw core issue of the gospel. Not everyone who is religious loves and puts their faith in Jesus Christ. And there were false teachers in Corinth. That's why the truth issue was so important. There were false teachers who maybe were sitting among them or maybe, you know, catching up to them down the street when they left the church fellowship, undermining the truth of the gospel. We find, we find all kinds of opposition to the gospel throughout the New Testament letters. Philippians 3 Paul describes how the very religious Jewish people, he called them enemies of the cross of Christ. Because in spite of of their religiosity, you could say, they did not believe in Jesus Christ. They refused to accept God's own son who had come for their sin. And so that's an enemy of the cross of Christ. So they were facing eternal judgment for that. So, So Paul, even as he closes his letter, has to speak truth. Everyone spends somewhere forever. You can't be an enemy. You've got to identify truth and, and error. But then he says, as he addresses finally the, the people he, he wrote to, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. The grace. So the reason his recipients, the reason the people getting this letter were different is not because they weren't such bad sinners. It's only because they were recipients of the grace of God. And that's what we are as believers in Christ. We are not better because we're better. We are only sinners saved by grace in whom God is at work by his spirit to gradually conform us to be more like his own dear son. But we are sinners, recipients of God's grace. So the truth Eternal life and eternal judge or eternal judgment awaits all. Grace, by simple faith in Christ alone, you can know your sins are forgiven and you have eternal life 
in the final statement, he says, I love you guys. Kind of like what Pastor Nate sometimes says just as he dismisses you at the end of a service, right? My love to all of you in Christ Jesus, amen. More grace for a struggling church. Grace and truth are Paul's heartbeat. He never backed down of the truth of the gospel. He never backed down in addressing specific sins in the church at Corinth. But he never failed to show his heart of grace for Christians, even in their struggle with sin. But that's the reason that Paul could give hope to this struggling church, is grace has the power to transform us, not guilt. Grace has the power to transform us, to understand the grace of God, the grace of God in his discipline of us, the grace of God in, in the people he gathers around us, the grace of God in the word that he gives us, the grace of God in the Holy Spirit who he has given us to give us the power to progress spiritually. So we can speak truth, but we must speak it in grace. Question, so where are you? Are you are you one where people are mostly hearing truth but not experiencing a lot of grace? Or do you tend to be the one where they're experiencing your grace but they, you're kind of too shy about the truth? Do you know where you are and do you know how to balance those because both of them are true and they, they, just as they have been perfectly united in the person of Christ who came because of truth issues and on the cross he gave his life, the sacrifice for our sins, utter grace for us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for grace and truth. Um, we need your word all the time. It speaks to our heart. It, it exposes areas of our life that uh, maybe we've covered over. And so if, I pray for anyone here today who uh, is, need, is in need of truth. I pray you just open their heart to hear, hear the truth of your word at whatever level about eternal life and our sin debt or sin in our life or anything where you are shaping us. Give us a heart for truth and then give us, Lord, if we need grace today to realize that you have never ceased to love us. Your love for us is everlasting and because of your love for us, you sent your son Jesus and you, you send people around us and so we, we thank you for your grace and your truth and we rest in those in Jesus' name. Amen.